most of the issues I think that we face in academia are to do with the cheapening of labour and focusing on saving money through making people cheaper rather than on making sure that we're doing good science. Postdocs are, besides graduate students, the main workforce in academic research. Following the PhD, the postdoc is the only way to follow a research career within academia. Many PhDs around the world are advised to go to the United States of America for a postdoc or two, because it is known for its large research output and high-quality research institutes. 66% of postdocs in the USA are foreign-born. But is a postdoc in the USA really the right career choice? In this episode, we talk about the conditions science postdocs face in the USA, which, spoiler alert, seem to be far from optimal. And this doesn't just hurt the postdocs and their families, it also impacts research productivity. Whether you are an academic, a student, or just someone interested in how public investment in scientific research translates into high-quality knowledge, this is an important issue. As always, and I really advise everyone to check it out, the whole conversation is available on Patreon. To listen, you need to sign up with a $6 pledge per month. This also gives you immediate access to all the other extended edition episodes. If you think it's not worth it, you can simply reduce or cancel your pledge afterwards. But I really hope you will decide to support our work and become a member of our community. Without your help, Science for Progress will not be able to grow and improve. I'm your host Dennis Eckmeyer and you are listening to episode 27 of the Science for Societal Progress podcast. My name is Gary McDowell. I'm the executive director of a non-profit organization called Future Research, which is trying to push for changes for early career researchers and scientists and to try and help them deal with some of the issues that they're facing as they navigate their way through academia and through science. I started off as a chemist. My, um, I did master's research in protein folding. Uh, I did my PhD in oncology, looking at protein degradation. Both of those degrees were at University of Cambridge in the UK. I did my first postdoc at Boston Children's Hospital, looking at um, embryo development uh, and protein changes over time. And then my second postdoc was at Tufts University in Boston, And that was looking at left-right patterning during embryo development and cytoskeletal proteins involved in that. So I come from a protein chemistry background, I guess. During his second postdoc at Tufts University, Gary decided to switch from being a postdoc to studying postdocs. My first postdoc experience was not ideal. I was um, essentially competing with another lab down the road. I was having a what a lot of people have described as a extreme but not unusual Harvard Medical School experience. And um, it just wasn't fun. I just wasn't enjoying doing science um, in, in quite a contrast to how my PhD experience had been. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I moved uh, to postdoc uh, at Tufts. You know, it was more enjoyable. It was more collaborative atmosphere. The project was interesting. But still, through all of this, I was really experiencing the nature of the postdoc position, which was in stark contrast to a lot of issues in in graduate school. Um, You know, namely that there's not a lot of transparency about the postdoc position. I think a lot of people, myself included, don't realize sort of what you're getting into in comparison to graduate school, which I think has a lot more definition and um, is frankly a lot less isolating. So I, I became really interested in the nature of doing science, and in particular this 
you know, the role of early career folks, particularly postdocs, but also uh, graduate students um, and the issues that they were facing going through the system. So um, around that time, a paper had come out in PNAS that was written by four uh, very senior biomedical researchers. And they were giving their sort of um, elders of the enterprise perspective of here are the issues that we see. And we see particularly the, the junior people you know, people aren't having as much fun as they were when we were postdocs was a, was a big theme. Um, and so there were a group of us in the Boston area who um, started to get together to organize a conference to essentially get the perspective of early career scientists. So it was called mm-hmm. the Future of Research Symposium. And we, we had various workshops discussing various issues. And we wrote up a white paper about it. And we came to the conclusion that there were three sort of major issues facing junior folks. One was obviously funding, but another two were the lack of transparency about the system and the lack of just any information uh, to help people make rational and informed decisions going through this, uh, the academic track about careers, about just the nature of, of academia. And then the other component was how isolated various researchers could be both from each other, but also from people in other uh, tiers or other career stages. So that postdocs, as a, as the extreme example, are, tend to be quite isolated from other postdocs, uh, but also are quite isolated from graduate students and early career folks sort of exist in a different world to a lot of senior folks, which has come up in a number of our projects. The, the differences in opinion between those groups. So, you know, we put out this 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 paper into the world. And um, I think, honestly, at that point, we thought that that might be that might be it, you know, that might sort of draw a line under it. We hoped there would be more action and more follow up. Mm-hmm. Um, but we said it'd be great if other places had meetings like this. And so a few places around the country in the US held uh, meetings in the following year themselves, which we helped out with. And eventually we were approached by um, the organization who has funded our initial grant, the Open Philanthropy Project. And they said, oh, you know, we're kind of interested in this from a a perspective of the efficiency of science, because it seems like this is a real inefficiency. We were like, we agree. So, um, so yeah, I ended up transitioning, writing a grant for them and then transitioning into this role full time uh, out of academia um, and into this nonprofit sort of academia adjacent role. So there is a clear disconnect between the lived experience of postdocs and the picture that senior academics apparently have. Let's start with clarifying what a postdoc is advertised to be and compare this to the reality. What I think the postdoc should actually be is someone who is conducting their own research, who is trying to set up their own research program and is doing that under the mentorship of a more senior academic. That's been the sort of the idea of the postdoc, I think, this apprenticeship model. But it's it has been distorted by this need for, for cheap labor. Declassifying a PhD to trainee is the justification for reduced pay compared to other career paths. But the postdoc experience usually is not a training experience. What the postdoc is at the moment is essentially um, someone who is carrying out work that needs to be done for a grant in the majority of cases. Um, This is a role that traditionally had been played by staff scientists and has been taken up by postdocs because postdocs are identified as trainees and are therefore cheaper. 
you know, this this is sort of frustrating. The, the idea that postdocs are trainees is is to me very galling because essentially they're just continuing what they were doing in grad school in many cases. And to, to me, the, the difference between getting a PhD and doing a postdoc should be that a PhD teaches you how to be a scientist, but a postdoc should teach you how to be an academic and how to be a how to lead a research group. Um, and so that should include how to manage people, how to manage finances, how to, you know, a lot of these much more um, professional development kind of things are very important here. But essentially, most postdocs are doing the, the sort of lab work that needs to be done for the person who has who has gotten the grant. Okay, so there's something not going right for postdocs. Talking to a good number of them from different institutions on their Future of Research conference made this clear. And this would be a major inefficiency in scientific research practice that should be addressed. But sufficient data were not available. So reviewing existing studies and collecting more data was what Future of Research got their grant for. But this turned out more difficult than expected. Most universities couldn't count the number of postdocs that they actually have currently accurately. Yeah, I remember um, that. That's yeah. <laughs> how. I mean, they pay them. They, they need to yes. know how many there are, right? But they don't. Right. So, so there, there are these um, various different titles, you know, like dozens of different titles that postdocs can come under at institutions basically to do with how they're administered and where money is flowing from and to and how they're paid and who's paying them. Um, and so it, it leads to this uh, very surprising situation where people don't actually know how many trainees they are training. A lot of universities were scrambling to figure out who their postdocs were to make sure that they were going to comply with the labor law. The change in the labor law Gary is referring to was supposed to happen around the time Future of Research became an NGO and began working on postdoc-related topics. So postdoc salaries became the first focus of their research. In a nutshell, the USA have a rule that certain groups of workers cannot ask for overtime pay if they are paid a certain annual salary. This threshold was at $23,000, which is below the median income over all American workers. Which means as long as universities paid more than around $1,900 per month before taxes, postdocs were not eligible to ask for overtime pay, and nobody needs to check the real work hours of their researchers, which are estimated to be more in the range of 60 hours per week. The Obama administration realized that the threshold needs to be adjusted because it hadn't been for 15 years. So they wanted to raise the threshold to a number above $40,000 per year. Institutions who didn't want to raise salaries were attempting to have postdocs moved based on the fact that they were quote-unquote trainees, uh, moved into a group a lot like medical residents, um, people who are, you know, are post-medical school but are doing their medical training. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, these people are trainees in very much the same way uh, as, as medical doctors. You know, they're post their doctorate. They're, they're in this training position. Um, and what was interesting was the Department of Labor in the U.S. essentially didn't buy it. Um, <laughs> uh, thanks in part to uh, a group of unions who represent postdocs going along and explaining, hey, here's the reality of the postdoc. Um, it's, it's not really a training position. They don't get, there's no credentials at the end. Uh, nobody's really measuring whether they're getting trained in stark contrast to the medical residency, right, it, which is of a defined period and has very clear training outcomes and requirements. Um, and they said this is essentially just a, you know, a bench position. Um, 
And the Department of Labor was like, yep, uh, that seems that seems correct. So it did look good for postdocs, but then the change was not put into effect, which the public learned only 10 days before it was supposed to come through. Thankfully. And most of them had already budgeted, already committed, and frankly already knew that the moral answer was that they should raise the salaries. Yeah. Um, and places like the National Institutes of Health had said, we're still going to commit to this raise because, again, we've budgeted for it and you know we know it's the right thing that we should have done this before and it's the right thing to do. And then there were some places who did try at the last minute to cut their salaries. People started to come to us and say, hey, my institution just sent me this email saying you're not getting your raise next week. Uh, or even in some cases, they got the raise and the institution was going to, they'd already cut the paycheck, but they were going to take it back out of the next paycheck. All of these crazy things started to appear. So we decided that we should gather the actual um, salary amounts on the day that the change was supposed to come into effect at all of the institutions that we could in the US. So we used freedom of information request mechanisms at uh, major public universities with, mm -hmm. with big postdoc populations. And basically just asked for the title and for the salary of the postdoc. And this, first of all, gave us a, a bunch of data on the actual salaries, but it also highlighted the standard of the data because a lot of places, again, because they couldn't find who their postdocs were, essentially gave, you know, very small data sets. Also, in the way that they were paying people, we would get salaries of zero because the institution was saying, well, we're not technically paying them because they're getting paid by some other agency directly and so, hmm. and so we, we got this like very confusing picture of, of salaries, but also generally we got a sense of what the average salaries were and median salaries were across the country. And we were able to, you know, make some, um, some interesting assessments based on that, which we then published as a paper. And we've continued that work. We're going through now the data we've got for the two years following that, because we can start to look at longitudinal data. We've asked for names. We can actually start tracking people. So it's it's been an interesting project so far. And that that has been a you know, with the goal of trying to make the postdoc um a more transparent thing, um a more well-known thing. Uh and it's also had the great effect, of course, that some of the places who cancelled their salary raises were effectively shamed into reversing that decision again when they realized that they were in extreme minority. And what exactly are those numbers? NIH brought in a number. Um, for its fellowships, um, starting at uh, 47484, I think that's right. Just slightly higher, and only because it divides by 12 better. That's, that's mm. the only reason. Uh, and it was that NIH number which turned out to be the median. And that made a lot of oh. sense because, um, I mean, first of all, we expected that the, the Fair Labor Standards Act number itself would be extremely determining. And there were definitely a lot of salaries that were, were at that. So we, we assumed that people's salaries had been raised to that number, which had emerged in the last six months, right? That, that number, being at exactly that number, indicated that they had been put at that number at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and the 47484 number came up because a lot of institutions just go by the NIH's guidelines as their recommendation for their salary policy. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting because the NIH salaries only technically apply to a very small subset of uh, awards that NIH gives, um, fellowship awards and training awards. But it doesn't apply to researchers who are, who are on research project grants, which is mm -hmm. most grads and postdocs. Um, 
But interestingly, because, because the institution just uses this number, um, postdocs across the institution, and interestingly across all fields, were actually tied to this number. So the, the policies of the institution are being set, you know, legally, a very, very tiny subset of postdocs actually has to have this number, but mm -hmm. institutions are sort of pegging everything to what NIH is doing. So NIH, you know, a conclusion we came to is NIH is really setting the postdoc salary in the US through their policy, which um, I'm not sure they were thrilled by yeah. <laughs> having that possibility, but well, that they had that nonetheless. Future of Research is continuing to track these numbers, both to see whether this effect is continuing and to keep the conversation on this topic going. Now, most postdocs leave academia at some point because there aren't enough jobs in academia. There's a really interesting um, paper by, um, uh, it's Can and Ginther, and I think it was 2017, and it's about the effect of postdoctoral um, experiences on researchers, and it focuses pretty much entirely on salaries. Mm -hmm. And um, what's really interesting is that they found, um, they compared people who had come out of a PhD, um, compared the subset who did a postdoc, with their colleagues who did not do a postdoc. And across all fields, people who did not do a postdoc um, were earning more than people who did. Just to throw this in real quick, we just learned that postdocs had a median income of around $47,500, the median income for all people with doctorates in the USA in the year 2016 ranged between $70,000 and $100,000 per year. But we're not talking just about the income during the postdoctoral phase. We're talking about long-term effects on income. Including up to 15 years past getting their PhD. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, I think there was, there was a, lot, a strong reaction from industry about this. They were very much pushing the narrative, oh, a postdoc really helps you. And what they showed was that if you go into industry or the postdoc, you're still earning less after 15 years than someone who presumably went in straight from a PhD. The same was also true for tenure track positions. It was across every single profession, including academic ones. Um, and the, the, really the only argument I've been hearing from leaders is, well, they're not on the street unemployed, homeless, right? So they're doing some kind of work. But, you know, whether that is working in Starbucks uh, or in some sort of service job, right, or whether it's working in a job that requires a PhD or a postdoc, um, I think the jury is still a little light on. I, th I, think it's, I think it's relatively optimistic, but I think it's, it's not really a great argument to be making that, that your baseline is whether people are homeless and unemployed. So, <laughs> Obviously, we are talking about the American experience. However, the scientific community is international and similar complaints can certainly be found in other countries and fields as well. If you happen to know more about the situation elsewhere, please get in contact by sending me an email to info at scienceforprogress.eu and tell me about it. If we get your input in time, I will talk about it with Bart in the next episode. Okay, so postdoc salaries in the USA aren't too great and doing a postdoc appears to actually be a hit to your prospective income as well. But income isn't everything, of course, so surely universities take care of their main labor force in other ways, right? Institutions do not uh, place such a central role of how do we ensure that our scientists are well supported so that they can do the best research that they can do and that they're not distracted by thinking about childcare or thinking about money or thinking about where they're living or thinking about their benefits, right? 
Um, but instead, we were trying to figure out how to sort that for them and support them in doing their research. Um, I think it's quite quite shocking. I, you know, I think the most striking case in the U.S. Um, with the way that health benefits work here is that a lot of people who will get a competitive fellowship um, or some sort of scholarship or some sort of award, um, if they're being paid directly or if that's coming through to them uh, and not through the institution, the institution will say, well, you're no longer an employee, so you no longer get health benefits. And you're getting people who get sick now, right? And they, I mean, I've, I've heard of people literally turning down a fellowship, a competitive award that they got as a, you know, an accomplished scholar because they're like, well, it's this or my childcare, um, right? Or, you know, it's some, or I have some pre-existing condition that I won't be able to get covered, right? It's, and again, it, it's obscene to me that institutions are not saying, we're going to pay your your the little cost for your health insurance because you got this great award, right? You're a great you you're a good scientist, and we want to reward that. Instead, places are like, oh well, we we can save some cost here, right? Um, and it, it just is so that just shows to me the, the where the priorities are of an institution if they they want to claw back whatever little piece of money they can. Um, it's really it's really sad. <laughs> Yeah, that reminds me of conversations that I had with other postdocs. And see, I, I, I view academia as an international thing. So I feel like uh, all these issues should be known to everybody around the world. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. So because also a lot of countries say, oh, do a postdoc in the US. It's so great. Right. Uh, right. But if you talk to people in, in Europe, uh, most countries here have mandatory benefits. Uh, it's so mandatory that people don't think of it as a benefit. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, people from the UK, for example, were quite surprised to learn that you might end up without health care right. <laughs> in the US as a postdoc. And yeah. I think this needs to be known because, uh, because it's an international um, society, academia, uh, there needs to, to also be pressure from the outside that people, for example, in Europe know what are the conditions they are going into. They yeah. probably assume because it's fine in their country and most of the countries in Europe aren't as uh, uh, rich as the United States. So they will, will assume that it will be better there, but it right. might not be. Right. It's, it's absolutely true. And, you know, I think, I think as you say, this is, again, why talking about the money is important because salary is one thing. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, the salary in the U.S. is people are like, oh, it's quite high now. But you're like, yes, compared to the U.K., it is higher. But also in the UK, you get all of your, all of your there's a nationalized health service, right? And, um, you know, and vacation that, time, I guess. And there's vacation time, right? Right. It's more than two weeks. Um, yeah. If you have a baby, you don't have to. I mean, literally people here will schedule a, a cesarean section at Christmas so they can like have the baby on the Christmas vacation and then come back to work as soon as possible. And it's, Jeez. you know. Um, you have to claim disability uh, in order to um, to get some time off for, for having a baby. So much about how much people care about the personal needs of those who are supposed to be the next generation of leading scientists in cutting-edge research and the professors teaching the next generation of highly skilled workers. Talking about becoming professors, the postdoc is supposed to be a training position. How much training do postdocs get to become competent leaders? I mean, especially because that's that's why what they sell us the postdoc for, right? To advance our career and then 
we're not allowed or we think we're not allowed to go to career development uh, workshops that's and it's it's particularly a us problem i find compared to the uk so for example in the uk um Every year I had to do 10 days worth of professional development things. And it was, the bar was very low. It was literally, did I go to a seminar? Did, did I leave the lab? That was the bar, right? Mm-hmm. And it was, it was mandated by the institution. It was mandated by the funding agency. Um, and so, you know, the professor had to, had to let you do it. And it was a great mandate for people like me who wanted to go out. I did a, a course in pedagogy using that time, for example. Um, but also for people who you know, you can't force people to leave the lab sometimes, right? And so for people who didn't want to do any of that, you know, training stuff, because they didn't, mm. you know, for whatever reason, um, you know, they could go to a conference or they could go to a seminar and that would count, right? So it was it was easy to do, but it provided a great mandate for, for getting training. Mm. And um, I was at a talk by the, uh, the postdoc officer, the head of postdoc training for Imperial College London, at mm-hmm. the National Postdoc Association meeting in the US. And she started off her talk with this, basically talking about this 10-day training mandate. Um, I, basically as an introduction, as an aside, not even thinking about it. And the room descended into chaos as people said, but how do you, how do you get the PIs to let people go? And she's like, they have to let them go. Like, they, they, have, to, they have to let them go. And it was this fantastic cultural disconnect um, because in the US, the idea that... that the PI doesn't have total control of the person seems um, seems extremely strange. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, you see the same thing in people graduating from their PhD. It is bizarre to me that a a professor has such a say in when their person leaves because mm-hmm. of the conflict of interest. You know, yes, they ha- they have become their most productive and they're the best, right? That the, right. they will be. So of course you want to keep them like another year and get that right. work out, right? So. And, and not that, on a postdoc salary. That would be too expensive. Salary. Another issue of everyday business at research labs is peer review. And this one extends far beyond lack of training. We've just published this, this preprint, right, about um, peer review uh, of journal articles. And um, the motivation for this study was that we, um, you know, my, my co-author and I we were at this conference about peer review and um, a discussion of a phenomenon came up that we thought everyone knew about, which is graduate students and postdocs who will do peer review, essentially, of a journal article and then give their, their written work, the, the review, the report, to their professor, who will then take it and submit it or will work on it or may do whatever. But it, you sort of pass along a piece of work. They ask you to review it for them, essentially, or sometimes with them. Um, and then they'll submit it and your name isn't on it. You're not known to the editor, you know, and we were sort of, you know, we had done this. Um, and, uh, somebody from the journal eLife, um, who have a, an early career group, uh, they had done a little survey and they had shown that, um, most of the early career folks that they asked had done peer review, but that their professor had, had not done any, there had to be no input from the professor. They basically just gave this thing, um, and the professor didn't help or do anything or give them any feedback. And people, senior people in the room were really shocked. And in fact, they started to say, you know, this doesn't happen. This can't be right. There's some mistake with your data. And every young person in the room was looking at each other and going, we've all done this. And, you know, there are various reasons that people do it. So I think I had done it um, 
you know, because the journal didn't allow, quote unquote, um, early career folks to peer review. So my professor just let me do the review and he he took it. But, you know, he he gave me credit otherwise, right? Um, and then my colleague, she had, you know, her professor, I think just assumed this was the way it was done. You just, you know, you work with the person, it's a training experience, and then you submit the review. Um, but when you actually start to dig into it a little, a little deeper, it's it's actually really concerning that this is going on because, um, first of all, the confidentiality of the paper is broken. Um, and um, also you have people reviewing it and you don't know what their conflicts of interest are. You don't know, you, there are some group of people doing review that the journal editor doesn't know about. And that's really hard to you know control the standard of review. So of course we are sitting in this room and we had no evidence beyond this eLife survey, right? Of, um, you know, and people were saying, this doesn't happen. There's no evidence about this. So we were like, well, okay, we better go away and try and get some data on this. So we did this survey and we asked people about their peer review experiences. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, I think 80, around 80% 80 of early career folks had done co-reviewing. That is, they had worked with the invited reviewer on a review, um, but about 50% had what we were calling ghostwritten the review. In, this, in essence, they had done a significant amount of the work and were completely unknown to the journal. Um, and there were lots of very concerning aspects coming up too, because the major argument for this is that it's a training experience. And we actually found that most people were just writing a thing, giving it to their professor and never getting any feedback. So it wasn't really a valid of training because you're not even getting any feedback on whether it's good or not. So, you know, this, this, um, this, I think, I really enjoyed working on this project because it's such a future research thing of here's a, here's a phenomenon that exists that is extremely well known amongst grads and postdocs, uh, and yet somehow the scientific community is baffled. You know, it, it's been really interesting seeing the reaction to this study because we've had a, you know, we had a little write-up in science about it and a write-up in nature about it, and, you know, it's getting a lot of attention. And lots of grads and postdocs are saying, why is this a surprise to anyone? Why is this new? Now I have to somehow end this episode, although we talked about many more issues. If you want to hear the whole conversation, you can do so on Patreon. If you are an academic or have an interest in learning how the academic culture shoots itself in the foot by creating less than optimal conditions for early career researchers, it's certainly worth listening. The link is in the show notes. But I want to make clear that neither Future of Research nor Science for Progress are pointing all these things out to make academia look bad. We want to raise attention to the problems so that something can be done and scientific research becomes more productive for the good of everybody. So what is Future of Research trying to do now? The salary thing is sort of ongoing. Um, you know, we've set that up and now we want to look longitudinally over time how salaries are, are changing. Um, with the peer review aspect, uh, we're looking to try and come up with, um, you know, model policies for journals. A, you know, a major barrier that seems to come up is this issue of you shouldn't share the paper with someone else because it's confidential without checking with the editor first. Of course, people don't check first and then they say, well, I wasn't supposed to share this with you, so I now can't put your name here. So it's sort of two wrongs making a right. And so, you know, things like just tell people that they have to tell you who looked at it. You know, there are some journals who already are very explicit in uh, enabling co-reviewing and who are pushing for, you know, this is great for training and what have you. So, so we're pushing on that as well. Yeah, and then um, 
Another couple of projects that have sort of been fairly major for us um, have been, again, this project to try and put more early career folks on the boards of organizations. Some of them already do, um, uh, like American Society for Microbiology, for example. Genetic Society of America has a huge number of, of early career folks spread throughout the organization in various committees and various levels. And I think it's really in the society's interest. They all have falling membership. They're all complaining about falling membership. And I think in large part, it's because there's not a perceived benefit to early career folks in being a member of the scientific society at the moment. And having these people involved may help change some of that. Welcome Trust has just uh, set up a early career advisory board. eLife has its early career advisory group. And they also, I think, have early career folks on their their board too. so, you know, a lot of um, I think a lot of people are realizing this is smart because this helps us keep up to date with what's actually on the ground happening. So, yeah, that's we're hoping to, to push that a bit more as well. And then the other thing we've been working on, we have a conference in June um, uh, in Chicago and with sort of satellites around the country. We're trying to come up with a set of guidelines around mentoring and essentially providing a very basic checklist of things that a department could be doing to ensure that they are prioritizing mentoring. So we're going to basically work with a, with academics who are thinking about this a lot and people who are in the mentoring space. I'll come up with a checklist that could be useful for departments to really start thinking about mentoring, those who are interested. But also it could be a really interesting metric for early career researchers to use um, if we end up having a thing where there's different levels, different tiers. Um, or even just a sort of matrix that you can look at online uh, of what institutions have what in what departments. So we're hoping that that could be something that is useful for helping guide the decision of early career folks. It's very clear that lots of incoming grad students are asking institutions, where do your people go? And um, how, how are you helping them get there? Mm-hmm. And it's caused a bit of a panic. Um First of all, because a lot of them are saying they don't want to go into academia because of how awful it looks. So that's actually helping drive some of this change because people are really concerned about that. All of the younger grad students up to like year four are really, they're all talking about this and all the ones applying Mm -hmm. um, are are really aware of it. So that's really driven institutional changes around career development. Gary will soon be leaving the organization and he's been looking back at what he learned. And I think the key thing that's come up to me is that you know, I've spent a few years really sitting, trying to tell lots of people, gathering all this data, all of this evidence, and then trying to tell people, here's how the system looks. And, you know, you, you're you a scientist, you respond to data, there's a problem here. Um, what are we going to do to change it? Sadly, that doesn't really seem to work. A lot of people have compared my work to working with climate change deniers, bizarrely. Yeah. Like, like, you're like a climate scientist. Because, yeah. Yeah. Because people are like, I just don't believe this is true. Um I mean, I, I've literally heard academics say there's too much negative data about the system and we should stop We should stop producing all of these negative studies. They're basically saying we should stop studying the problem because we're identifying that there is a problem. Oh my Rather God. than we've identified a problem, what are we going to do to fix it? You know, and, and the motivation for this is, oh, we're driving people out of academia because they're like, this system is crappy and I don't want to be part of it. So somehow mm. the logic is, we should be talking less about how crappy it is. Um, and and so you see this weird drive to, um, we should talk more about how you can pick up your kids whenever you like when you're an academic, which, first of all, try, try telling that to a postdoc. I, I feel like I've done an experiment in trying to convince people based on evidence that they need to change. 
And I think what I've been able to demonstrate by having this prolonged effort is they're not going to change because they don't want to. It's not because there isn't enough data. That's what everyone uses as an excuse. Uh, and you see it from sexual harassment um, in the US to um, you know, postdoctoral issues, right? Um, this weird circular argument of we don't have enough data about postdocs, so we can't make any changes, but also we're not going to collect any data about postdocs so that we could make changes, right? It's it's actually against their interest to be collecting postdoc numbers. Mm-hmm. That and I think that the the important thing that we've been pushing on and starting to do is actually gathering the data ourselves and taking that control away from them to say, well, we don't know how this looks, we can't change it. And we can say, well, we looked it up and we've compared you all on this website and you know, you have you have no power over it. This was actually yeah. used um, with the, there's an effort to get more institutions putting up where their PhDs go. And um, I'm quite proud of the fact that uh, I and the organization were used as a threat to say, this group is going to collect this data themselves if you don't start putting it up. And if you put <laughs> it up, you at least control the narrative. Whereas if they put it up, they can say whatever they want. Um, and also, you know, we've got these folks on board, so they will you know, they will cheerlead you for putting out this data, which I was happy to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to support people doing good things. Yes, of um, course. It's, you know, it's not nice to be shouting at people and saying, you're doing this terribly or, you know, you're doing, this is wrong. But, you know, I, I also will do it if that's what it takes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I, th- I think that's been an interesting discussion for the organization to have of whether it's worthwhile trying to, trying to, make this case to senior scientists and to the establishment or whether it's worth just gathering this data and putting it out there and and you know embarrassing people right so embarrassing institutions um and and one hope i have i won't be you know i'll i won't really have a role in the organization going forward but you know again talking about when you get a fellowship and you, you lose your benefits um we talked about putting data about that up and i think I hope that the organization will gather that data and put it up and, you know, embarrass institutions who get rid of, you know, who who mistreat their accomplished scientists by taking away their benefits. Yeah, Yeah, just to be on record, you try to not shame them, but there is no other way. (laughs) Sometimes there's no other way, you know, because there's no excuse. That's the thing. I've realized I... I wasn't totally naive about this, but they had some pretense of an excuse when I started doing this work of there's just not enough information, but there's no excuse because I've sat in the room and I've told them, I've given them all the evidence and they've said, no, we're still, we're still not going to change this. It's, um, I, I think it highlights how little care there is about the people in the system. Mm-hmm. Like that's, um, that it's not, you know, they like to pretend it's to do with data, but it's actually because I think they don't care, which is a really sad conclusion to have come to, but I think it's a useful one. So, yeah. So uh, you're leaving. What's what's the next step? Um, yeah, it's a little scary because <laughs> for the first time in my life, I don't know what's coming next. Uh-huh. It's, there's the benefit of the academic track to an extent. It's like you always know what the the next thing is is or could be. Yeah, you just don't know um, if you get you know, in. <laughs> yeah, you get, you get to a point. I mean, I'm I'm in I'm in a very similar position, I think, to a lot of postdocs of not really sure what to do next. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I have I have various ideas. Um, I think I might you know be trying to work on some of these projects going forward, uh, and basically trying to find a way of funding that, um, and maybe doing a little sort of freelancing kind of work. I've mm-hmm. I've learned that. 
being a freelance academic is, you know, it's sort of a thing I recently discovered. So yeah. trying to see what can work. Um, yeah. And um, yep, I'm exploring a bunch of options to see. Cool. But uh, yes, it's um, it can be a little it can be a little scary, but I've I've had a lot of support from a lot of people who, um, you know, who are either passing my CV around or who are giving me advice. Um, I know I think the benefit, particularly on social media, of having a, a network of people that you can mm-hmm. talk about these things with has been the, the isolation part, I think, is the the that would have been the worst part. But yeah. there's a lot of people who have gone through this kind of thing and who are going through it, who are who form a good community. So it is at least nice to swap ideas and hear thoughts and, mm-hmm. and get, you know, and get support, um, which is really, really nice. I'm very grateful for. So, yeah, absolutely. So being a postdoc in the USA seems to mostly not be so great. The salary is comparably low and the prospect of income in future is not that great either. And the benefits that we take for granted in Europe, for example, are not at all a given. The pay cut is justified by the academic system by claiming the postdoc would be a temporary training position. In reality, people stay postdocs for many years and providing training doesn't seem to be a priority for the people above. The postdoc position is merely a way for academia to circumvent having to pay salaries appropriate to the skill and knowledge of their researchers. This is evident in the almost complete disappearance of staff researchers in academia and postdocs and PhD students having to pick up their work, leaving less opportunity to work on becoming independent. Thankfully, some change is underway. Many institutions are slowly realizing that the bad conditions in academia are beginning to deter young people. Future of Research is pushing for more transparency, more early career researchers on boards of societies and institutions, ways to measure the mentorship quality at a university, and guidelines for journals that will hopefully help improve the situation surrounding early career researchers who partake in peer review currently in secrecy. This will not only improve the peer review itself, but it also helps when early career researchers become known among journal editors. These changes are not just important because we should treat people humanely and keep our promises, instead of exploiting their ambitions and love for science. These changes will most certainly improve the research quality that you pay for with your taxes. For the summary, links to Future of Research and further readings Find the show notes to this episode on www.scienceforprogress.eu. If you have questions, critique or suggestions, please get in contact by email info at scienceforprogress.eu or on social media at scienceforprogress for Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Please subscribe and rate this podcast on your podcast app and maybe write a review. Don't forget that the full conversation is available to patrons on www.patreon.com slash progress. I thank you very much for listening. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening.